I want you to imagine, if you can for a moment, a person who lived in London in 1935, like to visit a certain park and gardens and in a certain neighborhood. They went there every day, walked there every day. It was beautiful. Now imagine that same person as a tour guide of that same area in 1945, after London had been bombed out and that whole area was basically laid to ruins. Imagine them walking around, pointing things out to you. This used to be that, and that used to be there, and how it used to look. You can hear the heaviness in their voice. You can maybe even see the tears in their eyes. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is Solomon walking around the world saying, this used to be Eden. It used to be the paradise of God. You should have seen it. Now it's ruined. Nothing is right. And I want to introduce the book of Ecclesiastes to you by uh, taking the first two weeks, actually, to meditate on its theme, which comes out in the first two verses of chapter 1. Why would I do that? Why would I take two weeks to introduce a book? Well, as I mentioned this morning, Ecclesiastes is a little bit different. It really is. What is this book about? What is its purpose? For what it's worth, this is my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, the last time I preached it, I think, was 2000. 11, um, Ecclesiastes is awkward, it's uncomfortable, which is why it's so wonderful. And I, I, as we go through it, or as maybe could be implied tonight, I don't want you to think of um, it's depressing when we start to talk about it. I want us to think about what's real, what's real. When, when, when we come to the Bible, generally speaking, um, most of us aren't familiar with the wisdom literature, with the exception of maybe the Psalms and the Proverbs, of course. Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, they're just very different. We're, we're used to thinking about our Christianity and the life of faith in God in prophetic terms, um, instructional terms, maybe even educational terms. So as a result of that, we put the majority of our focus on Paul's letters, and I'm not uh, criticizing that. That's not, that's not my point. But we focus more on Paul's letters, uh, the prophets, of course, the history. But there's this other genre of literature in the Bible that is also just as inspired by God, where God almost invites us in to evaluate things, to reach our own conclusions, and to reach them inductively rather than deductively. God invites us, for example, to consider the end. You ever thought about that in Proverbs and consider it, watch the end, and then draw certain conclusions from it. That's wisdom literature. Really, look at this, listen to this, watch this. What do you think this means? That's why it can be unsettling, right? Rather than telling us up front the meaning of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author is going to make this shocking statement and then take the whole book to flesh it out. And the answers here that do come are not cut and dry. Um, we will discover, interestingly enough, that the New Testament, including Jesus, doesn't disagree with Ecclesiastes, doesn't disagree with Solomon. In fact, 
reiterates Solomon. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 19 through 21. This is a text that probably all of us know, but let's hear this text tonight in light of Ecclesiastes. Paul says in Romans 8, 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I actually think that text gives us the only way to properly understand what a book like Ecclesiastes is doing in our Bibles. The world in which you and I live tonight once was the perfect paradise of God that's not only been marred by a curse, but subjected to futility. Both of these things come from God. The curse and the pointlessness. But the meaninglessness of life under the sun on earth is the work of God to drive us to our only hope of rescue in Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes longs for a Savior in realistic terms. Terms any human being on the earth can relate to, regardless of religion or culture, regardless of status or location, even though it never expressly says that's what is needed. A Savior, that's what it is telling us. So let's pray and we'll begin this book, great book, together. Father, you are the voice of Ecclesiastes. You inspired these things. May we hear you speaking to us in every chapter and verse of this book. Lord, I ask you for your grace. I ask you for your power that I would not get in the way of the message that is here. Lord, I pray that we would be able to hear it, that everyone in this room, the youngest to the oldest, would understand the amazingly, eternally profound thing you are saying to us about our whole lives as people on the earth in the book of Ecclesiastes. Please help me. Please help everyone believe your word. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Read the first two verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Right out of the gate, what do we know about Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is a sermon. It's what it is. A preacher or Kohelet, Kohelet, introduces himself to us in verse 1. He's gathering us around himself to listen, I do believe the evidence points most clearly to Solomon as the author. But as uh, I think J.I. Packer said, it wouldn't matter if it was Solomon or someone trying to speak to us as Solomon. It's Solomon. We're, we're meant to hear the book of Ecclesiastes as the voice of King Solomon. In verse 2, you find the main message of the sermon, right? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
1.3 to 11.10 are the explanation of that sentence. Chapter 12 is the conclusion of his sermon. Vanity, right? Hebel in Hebrew refers to a mist or a vapor, a mere breath. But the concept to which it points is meaninglessness. Uh, elusiveness. In Ecclesiastes, the word is being used to speak specifically of how meaning cannot be grasped. It can't be found. It can't be held onto. When you think you found it, everything is meaningless. That's one way to start a sermon. Everything is meaningless. Right? And we're instantly taken aback by that. Why? What makes people run from Ecclesiastes? What makes biblical scholars sometimes try everything they can to excuse the book as though he didn't really mean it. Um, it's, it's not divine. It, it's Why? Because when you read that second verse, it does not sound like faith. That does not sound like something a Christian would say, a believer in God would say. It sounds, if anything, like nihilism. Right? The belief, the philosophy that nothing matters. Nothing matters. But it comes from the fear of the Lord. It's rooted in it. It comes from the wisest man to ever rule until Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is a true statement inspired by God. He's correct. It's divine. God-given wisdom is what he writes from. He's discovered something about our world by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. See, but people of faith don't say such things, right? And if someone does, if we heard a believer say that, we would instantly want to correct them. We'd instantly want to make them feel better. You shouldn't feel that way. Beloved, are you sure? Are you sure we shouldn't feel that way? That everything is meaningless? Let's think it through. To to say that, first of all, to say that everything is meaningless is to make a very meaningful statement, isn't it? Right, that's the problem with nihilism. If, if, if someone says, uh, we can't know anything, there's no point to it at all, that's a statement of what can be known. Right? If you say we can't know anything, how do you know that? Right? It's, it's impossible to know nothing. And as soon as someone says about life, there's no point, We all get the point. That's filled with meaning. To say that is filled with meaning. There's no point to life. The nihilist is correct, I think, when he concludes that science has left us wanting, right? Optimism can be trite. Um, But when they say, so we can't know anything and there's no point, what they mean is we can know something and there is a point to that. And the point for them is, so do what you want. Nothing matters. That's the point of nihilism. This is inspired by God. He is despairing. He's not despairing like a nihilist. So don't hear Ecclesiastes like that. Like like he's bottomed out and he's in a bad place. And so he's reached this existential angst and there's just all this. Don't hear it like that. This is a sermon. And for him to say that everything is meaningless is a deliberate and strategic move by a preacher so that we will find meaning 
when we read this book. What is the meaning of verse 2? What is the meaning of meaninglessness? What does it mean that nothing under the sun has any true meaning? What does that mean? No matter what you do or what you accomplish in this life, you are chasing after the wind. You will die. It will end. What does that mean? And why does it matter? When people say things like, there's no truth, they're admitting that truth exists. Right? The the truth that there is no truth. That's a truth. One of the clues that life is mysterious and it's frustrating is that we're people who can't help but know things. We can't help it. We realize things. We discover things. It's unavoidable. We're searching. Searching people. There is meaning in the fact that everything is meaningless. But if the only reality in our world... The only reality that can be grasped or that is true is that everything actually is meaningless. Ask yourself a question. Then why is he writing? What's the point of telling you anything if everything is meaningless? What's the point of going on after verse 2? Right? What would be the point of continuing if nothing has any meaning and that's the only thing you can know? He means for us to discover the meaning of meaninglessness. It's very intentional. The fact that he's upset about the lack of meaning, we find as we go through the book, means that there is a desire for meaning in us. That's why he's upset about it. That's why he's crying out. Well, why is that there? Where did that come from? You'll find that all over the world, every age, every culture, everyone feels that. Everyone wants meaning. And they can't find it. Ecclesiastes is so important right now in our culture. It's so important. From the first verse of Ecclesiastes, it's raising one of the most ancient questions in the world that people are still asking. What is the meaning of life? And it doesn't propose to answer that question quickly. Take note of that. This is a king writing to us as a sage. He's not writing from the throne. He's writing to us from the coffee shop. Solomon most likely wrote this near the end of his life, but no later than probably 930 B.C. from Jerusalem to the people of Israel, then to the wider world. I think that's important that we we understand that he's near the end of his life, that he's older, because it implies that Solomon came to regret or at least rethink his appropriation of foreign deities, his marriage to pagan women, I know scripture doesn't tell us outrightly that Solomon repented, but I wonder if that's what Ecclesiastes might be doing, is revealing to us that at some point Solomon did repent. He he at least came to be aware of the fact that he had been left wanting after having everything, gaining everything. I think Solomon is telling us about the dangers of leaving God out and pursuing your own desires in a world that's meaningless. This is an older man telling you that all he got and accomplished didn't matter and didn't give him any meaning, and that should make all of us listen. One of the studies I watched, how many of you like Johnny Cash? Love his music. Johnny Cash is fantastic. Nobody likes Johnny Cash? Think, okay, all right. It's a simple question. It's not a trap. All right. Have you ever seen the video Hurt? 
where Johnny Cash re, uh, covers, a, I think, a Nine Inch Nails song, and he's just walking around all of his accomplishments. And the, the words of that song, I, cut, I, I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. In, in, in the middle of all his, his awards and accomplishments, that's an older man that's accomplished probably most of what he wanted to at the end of his life, and it's, it's not given him any meaning. We should listen when people like Johnny Cash start talking like that. Right? When someone like that is telling us, look, I, I got it all. It didn't do anything. Right? If we're going to get to truth, beloved, we need a raw and honest starting point. No games, no platitudes, no playing around. How many of you have ever read, it's another question here, A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. Has anybody ever read that? Okay. It's, have you, Ginger? So, yeah. So it's his journal when his wife, after his wife died. Um, as he mourns for her. The first part of that book is so raw and uncomfortable because you go into that book thinking C.S. Lewis is a Christian, a believer. And so, um, you're not ready for what you read there. Let me read to you some of the things he, he says here. Some of these just, why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Well, it feels that way. It feels that way sometimes. Listen to this. This is, talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. You don't expect a Christian to talk like this. That's how Ecclesiastes is. And I know that can you call Solomon a Christian? But that's Please don't misunderstand. I'm saying for us as we read it, you don't expect Christian people people that believe in the Lord, that that want to follow Him, you don't expect them to talk this way. That's how Ecclesiastes is. You, you, You especially wouldn't expect a preacher to talk this way or to start a sermon this way. The rawness of his questions, uh, C.S. Lewis, for example, it makes it sound like he's losing his faith. But at the end of it, he's become much more honest about the experience in this world of walking with God. He didn't lose his faith. He just became more honest. Grief simply has to be endured. I mean, that's, that's it. There's no Christian magic pill around the grief of losing a loved one. Why do we think our Christianity will just take grief away? Right? It, 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 I wish it was that way. I wish when I walked into a hospital room or met with a family or was preaching at a funeral, there was like some thing I could say that would make everybody better. There isn't. There isn't. The rawness of his questions made it sound like he's losing his faith. He's not. By the end of it, he'd become much more honest about the experience of walking with God. And grief is part of this. That, That grief simply has to be endured and that there isn't a way around it. That's true for the Christian person. 
And it's not sacrilegious to feel that way. Right? It's, 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 it's not. It's honest. It's honest. God has some big shoulders. And, and to come to the place, which a place grief, for example, can bring you like very few things can, where you realize everything is meaningless here and chasing after the wind is the beginning of an honest pursuit, a God-informed pursuit of meaning in our lives, which can only end in God. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says this phrase again and again and again. I said in my heart, I said in my heart, I said in my heart. This is like someone reading you their journal. This is not someone giving you their thoughts on philosophy. This isn't a classroom. When we, we talk about the preacher gathering us around himself, it's, it's not like a classroom. It's not academia. And he's not just sharing his feelings, right? It's, it's not like a selfie today. We're just, this is what I look like. This is how I feel. It's, he's bearing his soul with the most important questions human beings can ask. The language of Ecclesiastes is intimate. It pulls you in. And it's amazingly kind, by the way, of God to give us a book of philosophy that's set in the context of a personal dialogue rather than in the context of a classroom. Right? It's, it's not quotes back and forth. It's even very different from Job, which Job is a lot of that. Job is just... just 40, you know, I guess 30 some chapters of just back and forth with no real resolution to any of it. Ecclesiastes isn't even like that. That's not what it's doing. He's taking his crown off. He's sitting down. He's leaning forward, putting his elbows on his knees and saying, let's talk. This is a conversation with somebody who is desperately in search of meaning as a believer in God. So the believer's way of philosophizing, which wouldn't be sinful, is meant to be honest and intimate and relational. Ecclesiastes forces that by being intimate and humble, which is why we might tend to ignore it or or, or not think of it as much. And again, I, I, I don't mean that as some sort of insult and you're not really spiritual. It, it's, it's hard to read. It's hard to understand what am I supposed to make of this? We come to the Bible for answers. We don't come to the Bible to get more questions, right? That's not what we're really after. We have to remember that back then a king's memoirs would have been unheard of. I mean, Obama's probably published another memoir since we gathered tonight. Publishes about six a week. That was extremely odd for a king to publish his memoirs or tell you how he was feeling back then. That, that would have been extremely abnormal. Kings did not let you into their lives like this. That was just not... Part of the deal. And yet Ecclesiastes is so inclusive. He speaks to us as one of us. He speaks to us as a human being. He's not even talking as a Hebrew under the covenant. He's just talking as a human being. Unlike other books of the Bible, then, a reader doesn't need any knowledge of Abraham or Moses or Jeremiah to make sense of Ecclesiastes. And, and this is the commentary of a fallen king on the world, which means at the very least... It anticipates or begs for the commentary of the true king on the world who sees it clearly, Jesus Christ. But again, how, if at all, does Jesus ever disagree 
with Solomon. The coming of the new covenant does not change the message of Ecclesiastes about the world. It just reiterates it. It just gives it clarity. In other words, what is the meaning of life is not just a Hebrew question. It's a universal question. And God, in his kindness, is giving us access to wisdom. That's what wisdom literature is. It's access to understanding, to meaning. So if you ever wanted, by the way, to sit down with an unbeliever and read through a book of the Bible with them, which is normally way more successful than you think it would be, this is the book to do it. This is the book to do it. They don't need to understand anything about the Bible to access the book of Ecclesiastes. It's humble, intimate, inclusive, raw language. You know, it, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. One thirteen, really? You, you said that, right? I hated life. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I hated life. can't say that. What does that mean? Well, before we get there, it means at the very least, there is a wise way to hate. Just like there's a wise way of believing that everything is meaningless. So you start to read this and he sounds like people sound today. Sounds like young people sound today. Do you know how quickly now, and I'm not, I don't mean to be pedantic, but how quickly young people resort to, I'll just kill myself. Like there's just a leap now. Why? Part of it, they can't find any meaning. The little machines that we all stare at, they just, that's a study in its own way. If you struggle with depression, for example, you know what it's like to despair to the point of feeling like life is not worth living. And we hate feeling that way. But that is not what Solomon is doing here. I, I, I don't want you to think that. Why did he hate life? Why is that divinely inspired? To hate life. What's his because? Well, he's not a nihilist. His response is extremely thought out and sensical. So as he makes his case here to prove that everything is meaningless, he's going to talk about things like injustice and poverty and relational misuse and the lack there of of relationships and the beauty but the emptiness of art and nature and architecture and, and literature under the sun. That's his phrase for the life on the earth. There are seasons of birth and laughing and dancing, but also of death and mourning and weeping. And he says all of it is grievous to him. He hates it. It's very wise to hate murder. It's very wise to hate sex trafficking. It's very wise to hate tsunamis. That's wisdom. Hate those things. The wise believer enters the plight of the unhappy business that God has given us. We experience it too. We feel that too. Right? You notice that you, notice how poignant that is. We aren't trying to look for a way around that. No, 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 it's a happy business. No, it isn't. 
It's an unhappy business that God has given. He's not accusing God of something. He's realizing something. God is revealing something to him. We feel this too. We feel the human angst. We feel the trial and the anxieties and the problems. And we say, I hate this too. That's what he's doing. He even shows us how to hate wisely. Because if you'll notice as we read through, he isn't hating people. He isn't hating God. He isn't even hating himself. He hates what is done under the sun. He hates that the world is like this. He hates that life is this way. So the language here is humble, it's intimate, it's inclusive and raw, and it leads us to a way of thinking that is relational and personal rather than coldly academic or uncaring or glib, right? We we can come off that way, not meaning to, but just like there are just these little quick answers and there aren't that, that the language of this leads us to a way of thinking. It leads us to a sane response to the grief that is in the world. That is to wisely hate evil and sin and wisely hate what it's like to be sinned against. Verse 18, look at this in chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to this. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Yay. So where, where do I sign up to be wise? Tell me, where, where are they doing that? Right? Let me increase vexation. Let me increase sorrow. Again, don't miss the message of this book because it feels like at first glance he's pouting. He's not pouting. Beloved, who is speaking in Ecclesiastes 1.18? A wise man. That came from wisdom. That didn't come because he felt bad one day because something didn't go his way. That came after having tried everything that can be afforded under the sun and it left him wanting. Why are the wise sad? Right? As we grow and begin to respond wisely to what is wrong with the world, we're going to see it more clearly. How can you not be sad? You can't help but be impacted by it if we're honest about it. But the problem is, we're always in such a rush to feel good and happy that we tend to bypass the fact that with knowledge comes sorrow, not delight. The world as it is, is not fit to make us happy. It was once Eden. It was once perfect. It's been bombed out. It's not that anymore. You feel this in a million different ways in your life. Just maybe that day after day after day, nothing happens, nothing significant, nothing new. And you just begin to feel over time like, what what is the point? You feel like that as a preacher very much. I'm sure you can feel like that as a coal miner, as an accountant, as a teacher, as a Truck drivers, I mean, as a mechanic, you just, it's universal. Why am I here? What am I doing? Right? What am I accomplishing? To grow in wisdom is to grow in vexation. The older you get, the more you realize it's like this. And our personalities are different, but we all tend to feel the same thing. 
The more you discover, the more pain you feel. Why? Why? Why is life like that? Right? I hate... I hate how my father-in-law dies. It's just ridiculous. I hate how my brother died. Just, you hate it. Right? Everybody in here could talk like this. Everybody in here. Right? You just, wisdom is to go in frustration, not at people or at God. That's not wisdom. But to grow in vexation at the state of things. The wise will feel vexation. Right? Why would Jesus say that those who mourn are blessed? That's not just about later. That's a statement in the present. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why is it? Because there's a mourning for things that comes from wisdom. Not from despair, not from emptiness, not from depression, from wisdom. And this is not something we really want to talk about. It feels sub-spiritual because we're overcomers, right? And the joy of the Lord is our strength. And a merry face makes the heart glad and, and all those things, right? Beloved, do you know how difficult it is to be sad in evangelical church culture? Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how anathema it is? To not be on cloud nine all the time because you're going to heaven when you die. Church is one of the hardest places on earth to be sad. To be sorrowful. What's wrong? What's wrong? Buck up. Buck up. Feel better. Okay. It's one of the hardest places on earth to be vexed. Even if it would be coming from wisdom. Because others want to be quick to fix it. Right? It, it's it's wrong to feel that way. It's not spiritual. You you, you lack faith. Right? That's every Christian counselor I saw in my early years over depression. The answer was you lack faith. Well, okay, I'll just believe more, and you'll feel better. No, you don't. Maybe there's a way to recognize that it's wise to be sad about things that are sad. You know, I, I don't mean that to come off as scolding you. I'm, I'm talking about a, a topic here. It, it let, let people be sad sometimes. Let people grieve. When they, when people have lost a loved one, let them grieve. Let them be. Doesn't mean you can't help or pray or something. I'm just, let people be. It's, it's not less spiritual to grieve at a funeral than it is to have a celebration of life. Christians know how to make other Christians feel guilty about everything. Now, if you're grieving at a funeral, it's because you're selfish. Right? Let's not be selfish and mourn because they've gone on to a better place. Yeah, we haven't, and they're gone. And they're not coming back. Right? It's okay. Weep. Weep over things that are sad. That's the Response of wisdom. Mourn, grieve. Because Ecclesiastes would say that's better than laughing anyway. Ecclesiastes will say that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Really? 
How? Why is that true? Because it is true. Why is that the truth? I've been to a funeral and I've been to the birth of my four children. I'll take the four births all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. And the Bible says, no, 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 it's better to go to the funeral. Why? That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. Why would that be the case? That's one of the gifts of wisdom literature. It it brings us back to the reality of a world we, even as believers, are trying to squeeze life and meaning out of. And in a world like this, where we're looking for meaning, for example, our loved ones die. The people that we love the most are gone. The world is not going to yield to your desire to find meaning in it. It will not yield. It will not give it to you. It will not last. It will not provide it. You'll never find it in another person. There isn't a soulmate out there that can give you meaning. Right? And, and you, remember that movie, early, early mid, Jerry Maguire? He tells her at the end, it's a great scene, you know. He tells her, he looks her in the eye, you complete me. Right? Well then, you're not gonna be whole. And I'm not insulting the movie. That's not, it's a beautiful scene. It's not what I'm talking about. But I mean, I wish, I wish, Ecclesiastes washes away these ridiculous notions that we have of God and spirituality and faith. The normal perspective is, if I follow God, things will go well for me. If I don't, things will go badly for me. No, the wisdom literature is here to put an end to that way of thinking. We talked about that in our study on Job. But think of the Proverbs as the norms. Right? Think of Proverbs as norms. That's generally how things will go. But they're, they're not promises. It's not like every time you answer an angry person softly, they aren't mad anymore. It, it's, in other words, it's generally true. There's a way in which it's true that a soft answer turns away wrath. But that doesn't always happen. Right? So it's, it's, these are the norms. That's generally how things will go. Job, Ecclesiastes, they're exceptions to the norms. So there are norms in the world God has made and cursed and subjected to futility. And so then there are the difficulties of the exceptions to the norms that we have to deal with. Even Christians have to account for anomalies. That's what life under the sun is like for us. Proverbs are not promises, right? Raise up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. Generally speaking, yes. Not all the time. Not all the time. You'll, you'll meet people for whom that's not true. And, and they, they just beat themselves up because what did I do wrong in the teaching of my child? And, well, we, we, we gotta learn to read the Bible better, right? So that we, it doesn't kill us like that. You know, mom and dad at some point, they make their own call. You know, Jesus was not a successful preacher numerically. Don't let it destroy you. When after loving somebody and teaching them the best that you can, they go their own way. Sometimes that happens. It, we hate it. Right? We hate it. But sometimes that happens. 
But Proverbs, that, that, that's probably the Christian life we've been fed the most, right? Do right, it goes well. Do poorly, it doesn't. That characterizes the teaching that largely informs us as believers. Take two verses, call me in the morning, right? That's the approach. In Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 though, for example, even the norms aren't always simple. Don't answer a fool. Next verse, answer a fool according to his father. Well, when? When do I answer them? When do I not answer them? Even the norms aren't simple. But if wisdom literature, literature is the word of God, if Ecclesiastes is as inspired by God as Romans, and it is, ask yourself this question tonight. What does that tell us about God? If Ecclesiastes is inspired, what does it tell us about God? Beloved, he is not cut and dry. And that is remarkable. It is remarkable to understand that. For God to tell us that. God is patient. And a book like Ecclesiastes means he doesn't mind if it takes you some time to think about things. That's just pure mercy. Yeah, work it out. Think it through. It's so useful to contemplate for a good long while the reality that Ecclesiastes reveals to us. This is God talking to you and me, ultimately. These are the words of one shepherd in Ecclesiastes 12.11, who is ultimately the great shepherd, who is, by the way, himself the embodiment and personification of wisdom, and as such has breathed out these words. At the end of Job, God rebuked Job's friends, and God defended Job. When Job had said some very raw things about God that you could criticize him for. And if you read the commentaries, they do. He should not have said that. He's, he's, he's really not believing here. Baloney, he wasn't believing. Believing doesn't solve pain like that. It's a gift, beloved. This is a gift. That's what I mean. Don't let it depress you. It's, it's, this is a gift. So there's a level, there must be a level of the uh, C.S. Lewis kind of journaling and contemplating in our lives that God is able to take and not kill us for it. And it would do us well not to suppress What's going on inside? Take it to the Lord and hopefully our church becomes a Christ-saturated culture where we can actually talk like that to each other if we want to and you won't be belittled for it. Or um, Even if it does go into the realm of mental illness and, and your mind is just broken and you can't get over it, may this be a place of healing for that, not a place of being shunned because you, you don't have enough faith or you don't. That's got to stop. Why would we think the fall would not affect our minds either? Of course it would. Everything's broken. Physically we're breaking down, but mentally, other people break down mentally. Their problems are in their head. And I'm not trying to excuse everything, you know, through labeling it. Every kid nowadays has ADD. I don't mean that. I just mean let's not demonize the struggle of the mind for believers. Some people, I'm telling you, they're barely making it. But when they come in here, they feel, or any church, they feel like they got a smile and everything's okay and it just, it doesn't need to be like that. Sometimes the world is not worth smiling about. That would be folly. 
not wisdom. God must be safe enough for you to throw your whole heart out like that. That's what wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes reveals. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, God is not ashamed to stand by this as his word that is profitable for you. This is part of that. The theme of Ecclesiastes is that meaninglessness is meaningful. And so the language is humble, it's intimate, inclusive, raw. And as Zach Eswine says, I'm so thankful too for his work on Ecclesiastes, this leads to a wise hatred of life under the sun. Ecclesiastes, when it says, look, this is the way it is, reminds us that there's no bargaining with God in the world he created. This is the way it is. There's not a way to bend this world into meaningfulness. The life of a believer with God is not simple norms, free of complexities if you just believe the right information. Now your eyes have been opened. Now you can see. Now you can realize, as Solomon did, oh, everything is meaningless here. How does the believer not despair if it's true that everything is meaningless? There's a complexity under the sun that's so thick It cannot be escaped. And God is providing wisdom for us so that we learn how to respond to ourselves when we feel that way, to people like Job in our lives, with wisdom rather than foolishness or some trite religious formulas. Ecclesiastes is inductive. It doesn't tell you what it's about. It doesn't answer the question right after it asks it, so to speak. We have to arrive at it as we walk through it. We want things to be deductive. That's how we all wish life was. Tell us up front. Give me the information. I'll work it out. Life is inductive. We we learn as we go, right? In Ecclesiastes, you have to wade through 11 chapters of grief and pain and confusion and frustration to get to chapter 12 where he finally tells you what the conclusion to all this is, the fact that everything is meaningless, but even then, the dilemma is not solved. And beloved, I want you to hear me. Jesus Christ has not come to make the world meaningful. That is not why he has come. And if we try to use him to make what is cursed and subjected to futility, give us life and meaning, we will find him nothing more eventually than a mere spectator and a distant and pointless one at that. It's not like since Jesus has come now, everything here has meaning and everything now can satisfy. Nor is it the conclusion in Ecclesiastes that everything is worthless, nothing matters, who cares? Again, that's folly. The point, beloved, is this. You and I were not meant to live in a world like this one. That is not what we were created for. Jesus doesn't come to make this world meaningful. He comes to rescue us from it because it isn't and it never will be. Do you know what Jesus really is, if I can say such a question. 
He's the way beyond the sun. He's the way out to new Eden that will come down as a new heavens and a new earth for us. Beloved, meaninglessness is not us throwing our hands up in the air and saying, well, then I hate everything and I hate everyone. The sense of meaninglessness that we get from this world is the wisdom of God at work in us to make us crave a new world where righteousness dwells and that only the Savior can take us to. Do you feel that ever in your life that everything is meaningless? God put that there. God put that there. It has to be embraced. It can't be ignored. It can't be rejected. The world in which you and I live was once the perfect paradise of God that has not only been marred by a curse but subjected to futility and both of these things come from God, the curse and the pointlessness. The meaninglessness of life under the sun on earth is the work of God to drive us to our only hope of rescue and deliverance in Jesus Christ. Why would God give us a book like this? What does it show us about following Him? That knowing the truth in a world like this is wonderful and awful. And knowing that it's both is wisdom. This book is mentoring us. Sometimes we need to wrestle with God. Some of us have have walked with Jesus believing maybe for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and we've never gotten honest with Him about our relationship with Him. We've always tried to hide it. We've always assumed that every question or doubt was evil and came from a place of unbelief. Beloved, the person you want to ask the questions of will tell you who you believe your Savior is. Ask away. Just don't be superficial in your relationship with God. C.S. Lewis, as he grieved for his wife, said, My idea of God, this was near the end of his journal, he said, My idea of God is not a divine idea. The idea we have of God is not divine. That's not what is divine. It has to be shattered time after time. But thankfully, tonight, as you go, we know things that God has told us in His mercy, like we learn in Psalm 78, 39, in light of a book like Ecclesiastes. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. God knows that's what we are. Mary Zoll said, He remembers that we are dust. Can I, Lord, have mercy? And He does. He does. These are the words of one shepherd, the great shepherd. That's what Jesus is for. That's what Jesus is for.